Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's show is a little different format. We've brought back by popular demand our mastermind group on decision-making. I believe decision-making is one of those superpowers when it comes to living the good life. Improving our judgment can have a far-reaching impact on our health, our well-being, our emotions, our happiness, so many different aspects of our life. Decision-making is the primary tool we have to go about constructing a flourishing life. For today's show, we have a real treat. I've invited back Jake Taylor, Annie Duke, and Brent Snow, and I've asked each to introduce a tip or technique they recommend to improve decision-making. Hold on because we cover a lot of ground on this one and it's packed full of excellent advice. So let's get started. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Welcome to another episode of Decision Mastermind on The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray, and I've invited back three friends and colleagues to talk about decision-making and how we can get better at it. Annie Duke, the author of the best-selling Thinking in Bets, and now it looks like you've got another bestseller on your hands with your second book, Annie, How to Decide, which was published last month. Welcome back, Annie. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm not sure if How to Decide will get to the bestseller list. I think it's going to be a longer, slower birth because I had to release it into the middle of an election. It was a crowded news cycle there. It was a crowded news cycle due to the intervention of luck in my life, which was misprinting of 60,000 copies, which delayed it a month. But such is luck. The subtitle is Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. And the the topic today that we want to talk about are these tools and practices to to get better decision-making. And I've invited each of you to, to bring two or three to the table and discuss. I'm excited to get into that. I want to introduce the rest of the panel. We have Jake Taylor, CEO of Farnham Street Investments based out of Sacramento. And Jake, your latest quarterly letter to investors was devoted to the topic of decision-making and how to improve decision hygiene. Really enjoyed, packed full of wisdom there. Welcome back, Jake. Thanks for having me back, Sean. And uh, I appreciate the kind words. I've kind of turned into a bit of a junkie when it comes to this stuff. So I tried to put some of my best ideas together on all the things that are sort of outside of what we traditionally think about decision-making. Great. I hope you highlight a few in this episode. We can talk about them. And I wasn't sure what to call someone who is interested in decision-making like you just described there. Is it a decisionologist? Do we have a term for someone who's extremely curious about decision-making? Do we need to coin one? Awful. Is that just, can that just be the term? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like you could draw a Venn diagram because I think polymath would be in there, but that's obviously a broader term, but I like it would that. be some sort of mm-hmm. subset of that. And also on the panel, we have Brent Snow. Brent founded 10,000 Feet Consulting Firm, which teaches decision-making skills to Fortune 500 companies. Brent, welcome back. Oh, it's a pleasure, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. Annie, I'd like to start with you. What would you like to pitch as far as decision tools, tools and practices to improve our decision-making? The thing that's been the most top of my mind lately as one of the most powerful decision tools is quitting. The reason that, I, that, I, that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, and hopefully Brent and Jake will hop in here, but the broad strokes idea is that if you want to be able to deal with uncertainty, which you must be able to do in order to be a good decision maker, then quitting would really be your primary tool to deal with it. And the reason is kind of twofold. You can think about the two ways that there's going to be uncertainty. One is that the world is stochastic, just meaning that luck intervenes. When you flip a coin, it's not going to land heads every single time or tails every single time. And you don't know which, which thing is going to unfold. So the pandemic is a good example of the world is stochastic. We're all going around with our lives and then suddenly there was a pandemic. So what that means is that the world is going to change in certain ways, like technology is going to change, a whole bunch of different stuff is going to change. And when that happens, generally, you would want to be able to react to that. And the way that often you want to react to that is that you should want to change your mind because the world changed. You know, the idea kind of being in the 80s, it was probably, I remember there was, when I lived in New York, there was somebody was the king of beepers. There was like, it was Aaron, the king of beepers, I think. People should check on whether his first name was Aaron. But like there were billboards everywhere. He's like the king of beepers. And you can imagine like the 1980s, he was probably like Scarface with all the money he had made from beepers. But obviously today you would want to 
quit the beeper business and you would want to be doing something else because the world has really changed. The other form of uncertainty is hidden information. So when we're deciding about things, we're deciding behind the veil of ignorance or at least a partial veil of ignorance, meaning there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. And then post-decision, we'll often find out new stuff. And we've all had that feeling of, if I knew then what I know now, I would have made a different decision. And that's what that feeling is. Again, sort of thinking about the pandemic, I can tell you that I've certainly felt that quite a bit. So I spent all of much of March and all of April and some, some part of May quarantining my packages, wiping them down to with an inch of their life with Lysol. Everything got scrubbed. And then I sort of found out later that, oh, it turns out it doesn't actually live on surfaces very well. It's hard to get it from a surface. And so it's probably fine just to bring that stuff into the house. But obviously, I, I had made a decision to do something different before that because of the information I had. And obviously, if I, if I knew now, then what I know now, I wouldn't have been scrubbing my packages down. Oh, well. But when that new information reveals itself to you, you should also want to change your mind. And the way that we change our mind is to quit what we're doing. So obviously, people talk a lot about grit. Grit is a really, really important concept, right? We do want to stick to things and we don't want to quit them just because it's hard in the moment, not things that have a really good positive expected value. But the problem is that a lot of times things cease to have a positive expected value. Things cease to be the best thing that you can be doing. And this is actually quite common. And yet it turns out that as much as we have this focus on like winners never quit and quitters never win and like trying to encourage people not to quit, the thing that I would say we're worse at is actually quitting when the world tells us that we should. So there's all these issues with sunk costs. There's asymmetries as to whether you quit when you're... We quit too fast when we're winning. Anybody who's an investing knows this. Sell winners too fast, hold losers too long. We have the intuition that when we get new information, that we will react to it in a re rational way and we'll quit, but we don't. In fact, when we get bad information, there's wonderful work out there, some by uh, Maurice Schweitzer and Katie Milkman, in fact, that shows that you get this escalation of commitment. As things get worse, you actually escalate your commitment. Cade Massey has done really interesting work showing, you know, just simple pulling balls from urn type of experiments that statistically, if you have a whole bunch of urns and you're trying to sort of pick the best ones and you have to sample from them, you know, red and black balls, that the statistical models tell you you should be abandoning ship pretty quickly on a lot of these urns and people stick with them too long. So it turns out that we're actually crappy at quitting. As much as we're always told not to quit, it's funny. The thing that we should be told is to quit more. In your book, you say being quit-tuitive is not intuitive. That really stuck with me. People talk about stick-to-itiveness a lot, and, and I want people to get to quit-tuitive. And I, I just want to make clear, grit is really, really important. It's that what I'm saying is that if you want to execute on the grit really well, and if you want to know what you're supposed to be gritty about, and you want to know when you should stop being gritty and go get gritty about something else, that's where quitting comes in. And you can kind of think about it this way. There's a very small percentage of things that we actually stick to in our lives and everything else quit. So we should be thinking more about quitting. We should get better at it. We should figure out how to deal with these slippery slope problems, these sunk cost problems, these escalation of commitment problems. And then we need to then start thinking intentionally, not just about how do we get better at quitting when the time is right to quit, but how do we think about that in advance? of actually choosing things so that when we have two options that are that look pretty good to us, like we're having trouble deciding to us that the quitability, how easy it is to quit should actually be the deciding factor there because that allows us to deal with uncertainty. And then that quitting is a really good way to actually build really good models of the world and collect information. Because if you're a good quitter, you get, to, you get a bigger sample of the world because you don't get stuck on certain lines. So you're getting a broader sample of the environment that way. So anyway, that's why I'm like, I'm super into it. I'm like really deep on quitting right now. I'd like to open it up to the panel. Jake, what do you think coming at this from an investment perspective? When to quit? I actually wanted to ask the question of how do you draw the line sort of between principles that you would never quit or maybe that probably should never quit and everything else that you're ready to sort of walk away from easier? Well, first of all, I, I'm not sure that it's true that principles you would never quit. Because let me ask you this, because this is a problem that I think is always happening in communications. I would like to get examples and understand what your definition of a principle is, because I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. All right, let's just say to bring it back to investing, like a certain investment approach that has historically worked well, 
but maybe recently has not done very well. When is the right time to say like, all right, well, this like the world changed now and I shouldn't do this anymore. Or this is a principle that I still want to follow. We are on the same page. So I do think that principles are really good or what I would call like category decisions, like sticking with a particular category. The issue that we have, and this is why it's such a deep topic, is that it's hard for us to distinguish between what I would call a local minima, right? Which is just a dip and understanding when the slope is no longer positive. So obviously on any positive slope, you're going to have minima occur. You're going to have dips occur. So are you just in a dip or has the slope become negative? These are actually extremely difficult problems to, to understand. So there's a couple of ways to sort of handle that particular problem where the information space is fluid. This is a different type of quitting problem than there are some, there are some types of quitting problems where you can just put a deadline on it, where you know exactly how much sampling you need to do, and then you can be done. This is not one of those. What I always suggest to people is that you have particular assumptions that are built into your model and your model is going to be predicting certain behavior of the market. So prior to sometime before you get into a, you know, you get into the situation where you would have to make that decision, you should have actually said, here are the signals that have to occur in the world where I need to actually adjust my model. Here's what would be unfolding. So that's number one, is that you have to do these really good signposts to start saying, these are the signposts that would occur in the world that would cause me to quit. Quitting doesn't have to be 180 degrees, right? It could be, which would cause me to change significant things about my model. So you understand what the data capture needs to be. You understand what the predictive capability of your model needs to be. And also there are certain assumptions about what is true of the world that your model would actually work. So you want to be thinking about what are those, what are those base assumptions? What must be true of the world that I would think that this model was really the best way to model this data? That's number one. But number two, and I think this is also really important, is that I think that we don't do two things enough. One is that when we have a model that really works, when we have a thesis that really works, we don't have exploratory lines opened up enough. I'm saying, let me just think about some other models that might work and do some small testing of that. Right. And I think that's really important because sometimes you actually have a really good, your model's pretty good, but there's something better and you can actually clean it up. You could add to it. You could change and think about what are the things that would be true of the world in order for those things to be true. And then the other thing that I think that we don't do enough is to say, let me actually figure out what would disprove my model and then actually test that. So not from investing, but I'll give you an example from dating behavior. So let's say that I'm like a high school quarterback type of person. Generally, when people are dating, they'll just date a bunch of high school quarterback types. I'm just doing this as silly typing thing because they think I'm a high school quarterback type of person. And so I'm just going to go find a high school quarterback that's going to be the love of my life and whatever. But any high school quarterback, it's not going to offer you a whole bunch of information, right? So what you actually want to do is try to disprove. So if I think I'm a high school quarterback person, I'd be much better off if I went on a couple of dates with some computer lab people who were not high school quarterbacks. So and so forth. So it's better for me. I'm going to get much more information by actually going out and stress testing. So one thing that happens is I think that we forget to stress test. I think we forget to sample failures enough because failures can occur due to reasons of luck. And once we fail, we sort of abandon them. I think we don't keep other lines open and start to explore other ways to model the world. We don't do enough signposting that would tell us when we should want to quit so that we, when we're in the middle of the downswing, we don't have to make that decision. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's like, you have to sort of take this holistic approach to it, I think. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know what it reminds me of, Jake? If you think about investing, you go back historically at Benjamin Graham and his approach to value investing, sort of that net-net investment style that Warren Buffett learned from Benjamin. But somewhere along the line, a lot of people credit Munger for sort of shifting Buffett's view on this, Buffett started to take on this view of intangible assets and, and what an intangible asset, valuing an intangible asset while he's valuing a company, putting that into the intrinsic value. And that sort of shifted his view and really was the wind of the sails for many years. Is that what you're talking about? The principle all along was get more than what you pay for. And the application of it then morphed as the world sort of changed from more tangible to intangible assets. Like, I wouldn't say the 
principle maybe ever changed, but the tactics and how you executed it changed. And I think that's maybe some of more of the looking for those other lines of inquiry of how the world and how your model works is why you would do that is because the world is always changing. Maybe you don't have to change your principles, but you need to think about how you can apply your principles in how to more closely match with what the world is is giving you. I think that's where you get into a little bit of semantics. Like, so I can think about that. And for example, if I have a principle that do no direct harm to another human being, that's a principle that's not going to change in my life. The reason why I said I think they can morph is sort of, Sean, what you said, like, what's the application of that principle? How are we thinking about how that realizes in the world, right? So I could start off thinking that, for example, let's talk about like a government regulation that, that governments should want to ban casinos because some people become gambling addicts and that hurts their families. So that could be a way that I would apply. I could think about direct harm that way, but then then I could realize, well, that's not really direct harm. I have to think about direct harm as like direct harm to an individual, right? And in this particular case, that's indirect harm to somebody. So that then I could change my sort of like, how am I thinking about what direct harm really means while maintaining that core principle? But I think it's like the separation between the two. One is like, how is that realizing in the world? And that certainly can shift while the principle of like, if you invest in a company, you should be getting more than what you're paying. That's not going to change, but how you might realize that would change. So the way that you model... I mean, this is the point, right? The way that you model how you can determine whether you're getting more than what you paid, you should be exploring different ways to model that. Brent, you got any reaction to that? I actually want to just go back to kind of your intent, Annie, and I think it's a wonderful intent, which is to, in a sense, rehabilitate the term quitting. I mean, we have a whole societal historical winners never quit. I mean, you, you refer to that in your article, and it's, it's, it's stick-to-itiveness is always considered to be this much more noble value, whereas quitting is seen as is not. And so you're approaching it in a very counterintuitive way. It's just lovely. I love the fact that you're doing that because you're really, in a certain sense, saying, hey, let's rethink about what do we mean by that. The other thing I would just sort of add to that is you mentioned sunk cost trap a lot, but the status quo trap is huge. I oftentimes, when I'm teaching workshops, I refer to the status quo trap as the mother of all traps. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, people don't even, they're not even aware that they're reifying the status quo through various decisions that they're making and not changing to something else and not hold, not even considering that the status quo may no longer be a good option. It's one of the techniques that I sometimes use. Basically, you hold up the status quo as just one of the many options you're considering. And if Today, you wouldn't consider that option. You wouldn't choose the status quo. Then there's some really important information there about this status quo. And then, and then how do you move away from it? There's huge resistance. People have huge resistance to moving away from the status quo for all sorts of reasons. The status quo is known. It's comfortable. It may be that there's a level of uncertainty about switching from the status quo to something different that they perceive it may or may not be real that uh, holds them from even making that leap. And, you know, if I think about all of the, struggles that people have from a pure decision-making standpoint, probably the biggest single struggle is whether or not to leave something that is known, move to something that is unknown. To me, I just think there's, there's a lovely opportunity. There's a, whole, there's a whole discourse that I've come across and spent a little bit of time with, which they refer to as zero-based thinking or zero-based decision-making, which is, if I knew then what I know now, would I still be doing what I'm doing now or choosing to do what I do now? And you might, you might want to dig into that a little bit. That's why I think about that. And the intuition that we have is that when we answer that question, no, that we'll stop doing it. And But that's actually not true. I mean, I think that's where the problem is. But as far as what you're talking about, the status quo, or like we can think about it as like omission versus commission, right? Staying on the status quo would be omission. Moving to something new is commission. And we know that there's all sorts of asymmetries in terms of the way that we think about those things. And one of the things that I think about, which you pointed out, is when you said the status quo is no. We know what it is. I always think about this two by two matrix, right? When you make a decision that's like transparent or consensus or status quo, that when you get a bad outcome from it, it's like your job. When you get a a bad outcome out of it, it's kind of like people are willing to say sort of bad luck there. But when you do something that's more innovative, then when, when it works out, you get genius. But here's the big problem is you get idiot when it's a bad outcome. I think the problem is that it's just much more low vol to stick with status quo, right? Because we, we can only avoid the idiot box two ways. One is we can avoid the, the right-hand column, which would be like a mini-max strategy, just make it so you never lose, which is obviously going to make it so you don't win very much. 
or you can avoid, avoid the bottom row completely, which are these non-status quo decisions, which is moving off. And I think that part of the reason why uh, companies tended to get disrupted from without as opposed to from within, you know, this is sort of the IBM Apple problem, is that Apple doesn't have any status quo. So they're coming in and they don't have all that risk of, I did something unusual, it failed, and now I'm an idiot, which has all this career risk associated with it. Whereas within IBM, there's such a strong status quo that this quitting capability gets lost. Your ability to abandon projects gets lost. Your ability to try out new stuff that you have a very high likelihood of quitting, not going to work out. But when it succeeds, it's going to be amazing. That gets lost, but not for something like Apple. I think it's one of the genius things about Amazon. You know, Jeff Bezos actually incentivizes people to shut projects down, encouraging this kind of quitting behavior. But that status quo thing is so incredibly interwoven into this quitting problem because there are all these asymmetries, right? As to, I would rather take the low vol, low expected value, or maybe even slightly negative expected value line than move off to something that, that might be worse and might be better where I should actually be volatility seeking because I'm so afraid of the, when it doesn't work out. And it's not just other people judging you that way. You judge yourself that way too. I think one of the biggest challenges that any group of people face from a decision-making standpoint, and it's this tendency towards too easy consensus. And I know you write about it, Annie, and we all have sort of encountered it in lots of different contexts. And so as I have been spending a lot of time thinking about working on decision-making, teaching groups around decision-making and skills, there's this underlying fear of conflict or underlying concerned that if we disagree about something and have and let that play out on some sort of a level, that we're never going to get to a decision. Or in one way or another, we're going to leave with a decision that isn't a very good decision because somehow we've ended up just running away from the conflict and defaulting to something that we ultimately all can agree on. And so I've long believed that one of the skills from just a pure group decision-making standpoint that needs to be focused on is skills related to it. And I know you talk a little bit about it in terms of how do you bring different kinds of information to the table, but it's really the skill around how do you set the conditions where people are able to have a healthy debate? And they actually see that as a positive, positive thing in a decision-making process. And some of it has to do with setting the conditions. And I know, Jake, you talk a little bit about that as well, where you're going to kind of get to the best decision. But part of it is around for example, establishing people who are in the mix, who are very specifically tasked with being a devil's advocate, or I like to call them sometimes the loyal opposer. In service of the best decision, they're actually bringing up contrary ideas. They're the contrarians, if you will, in the process. And that's a role. And you rotate that role around so that it isn't just one person who's seen as the kind of negative energy in a decision-making process, which is how people perceive it sometimes. But also, creating the conditions going into a decision-making process where people have already brought into the process sort of pros and cons. My sweetie is a speech and debate coach at, her, at the local high school. And one of the things I so admire about some of the debate events and some of the kids who do it is they go into the event not knowing which side they're going to be arguing. And so there's a flipping of the coin, literally either 30 minutes before or actually in the room, two minutes before the debate starts as to which side they're going to have to be arguing, either the pro-con or pro-side or the con side. So they essentially have to have gone into it prepared to go either way or to argue you know, against a side that they ultimately intuitively may be in favor of, but, but literally to be able to debate against that because the other team chose the side that they would have chosen had they won the coin toss. It's a kind of critical thinking skill that I think we often lose in the heat of the moment in an organizational context where we don't posit the alternatives to what's really on the table and we don't create the conditions where that's going to happen naturally. And part of the ways that you do that have to do with not just getting locked into two positions, so widening the frame, having three or more different things that you're considering in one way or another, having the ethos of the debate or the discussion around the decision not be focused on personalities, but focused more on information and data to the extent that you're able to do that. Knowing that at the end of it all, you're going towards at least a common direction. You know, you mentioned Steve Jobs or Apple earlier, and there's a quote from him about, hey, we can have lots of great debate about the best way to get to San Francisco if we all know we want to go to San Francisco. But if one of us wants to go to San Diego, the other one wants to go to San Francisco, we have different goals, diverging goals in one way or another. And then just also having some sort of a process in place. And this is where that if we're having a really lusty debate as a team around a particular decision that we're making, that we all have a level of comfort around if we ultimately don't agree, 
or if, in fact, there are some really strong differences of opinion, that ultimately we still have a process via which a decision is going to get made, that we're not going to end up with no decision ultimately. And so having some confidence in that also being in place. And so that kind of frees us up to have that kind of debate, whether it be one person is ultimately going to decide if we can't get to a consensus and there's some sort of understanding of who that person is going to be, or there's other techniques that we might use to do it. But part of our ability to make good decisions is oftentimes directly related to our ability to ensure that we have the best information in front of us in that moment, knowing again that we might change the decision. And by the way, one of the ways, Annie, I've been thinking about this is I've been reading your stuff on quitting and I've come across this in other places as well, you know, sort of having an escape hatch, if you will, or a back door that you can go back out of, you know, with a chip and Dan Heath call a tripwire sometimes in the decision process. And sometimes the way in which people are willing to really debate alternatives is also they know that if ultimately we, we have this great debate, we ultimately choose one of the options we're considering, but we also have a way to reevaluate six months later or three months later, the quality of it. We have new information coming in. We, sort, we even set the conditions around, okay, if this new information comes in, or if we learn these new things, or if the environment changes, we will revisit this decision and potentially make a different decision. And so we're freer to feel like the decision isn't a single permanent decision in this moment, because we also have built that ability to quit into it. That's part of what I was talking about before with signpost and signal. So you have to explicitly say, so it's kind of a twofold process. If we decide to make this decision, let's explicitly state what we're saying must be true of the world for us to feel like this is a good decision. And then you can derive from there that what are the things that would have to be true of the world for us to feel like this wasn't a good decision? What are the early signals that, that the world might be unfolding in that particular way? So that creates those, what I call signposts as opposed to tripwires, right? So I, I imagine it as you've chosen a route and you're trying, you know, you can see those green signs, right? And you're trying to figure out which ones will cause me to want to exit. So I think about it as like driving on a highway and I'm looking for those exit signs. So when I see a particular sign, I know I want to get off the road. So very similar, very similar concept. Wanted to, if I could just circle back to a couple things that you talked about that just made me think about a few things. The first has to do with this idea of like, how are you getting people to not want consensus? Because consensus is horrible. We know that you reached consensus way too fast, that decision processes get shut down because of it. And I want to just suggest a reframe that I've been using a lot recently, as opposed to having somebody sort of sit in devil's advocate position, to actually have people do a little bit of mental time travel and say, let's imagine that. Let, this is a little bit different than a premortem. Let's imagine that it turned out that you were wrong. Why do you think that that happened? So I've been thinking about that in terms of like, so I work on some of the forecasting work with Phil Tetlock and people are having to forecast to sort of create these distributions of what they think possible outcomes might be. And these are things that don't have a yes and no or no answer. This is, you actually, it's done so that you can match the distribution up to the to the real distribution because you know the underlying. And the step that you think about somebody doing in that situation is imagine that you got the distribution wrong. So now give me the top three reasons why you think that might've happened. And I think that that gets you to the exact same place without necessarily having to like nominate someone to be the devil's advocate. The thing that I worry about with devil's advocate is um, the thing that keeps me up at night with that is straw manning. And I think that it's, you know, that kind of thing can be gamified. I worry about that a little bit also with like what Ray Dalio does, right? Is that you can end up with this sort of gamification of that kind of thing. Whereas here, by just reframing the question and exploring an exploration of, well, let's just imagine that it turned out like you're all knowing and it turns out that it was wrong. Like, why do you think that might've happened? That's one thing that you can do to really actually focus it in on something that's very difficult to straw man that actually starts to get you to explore what those kind of pressure points are on your decision, like where things might be going wrong. I just want to kind of lob that in. And then in terms of um, generation of alternatives, this comes to one of the points that I was going to make, which was about nominal groups. I think that it's really nice to have people do that separately. And to produce the, like, just to do some brainstorming of like, let's all come up with some different, you know, we're, we're sort of stuck on these thinking about this as a dichotomy. We have all this problem with like thinking about either ors, right? But let's imagine that we didn't have these two options. Like everybody go off and think of three, three different options and do that. And then you can generate, then you're going to get a lot more stuff that you can actually look at. So I think that's also important is to not do your brainstorming, like not try to generate those creative alternatives, like in a group setting, get that happening asynchronously which I think is really important. And then, and then the last thing is, I don't want it to be a throwaway. So I want to I like really double click on it. This idea of like, how are you deciding? 
how you're actually making the decision is going to determine how much consensus you think there needs to be. And I would argue that there should generally not be a lot of consensus around a decision, not one that isn't, what's the circumference of the earth? I suppose we can look that around up and we can get some consensus on this. But I'm talking about things that are pretty subjective here because kind of the whole point of having a group is that you have different points of view that are being brought to bear on the problem. And I should not in leadership, want there to be consensus across that group. It probably means I don't have enough cognitive diversity or there's some coercion going on or coercion, not in the bad sense and just conversations can go into a coercive place in terms of very articulate or smart people can get people to want to sort of convince other people of what they want. So I think stating clearly that consensus is not our decision process, unless we're talking about something that is absolutely knowable and fact-based and that trying to figure out whatever that is. So it could be like somebody's reporting to an investment committee and then it could be majority, for example. I don't know. It could be one person that decides. It could be two people that decide. But figure out what it is, but try to make sure that whatever it is, it's not consensus. Sean is familiar with it. We did a bunch of work and we ended up with a very clear model. We call it the SDM or single decision maker model because they were defaulting to consensus way too often. It was A, causing decisions not to get made. B, decisions to oftentimes get watered down or they would take the least, they would be totally risk averse in terms of, and there are a whole lot of organizational dynamics, people being afraid to make the wrong decision. So then they would get 50 people involved in the process. Or as you described, there would be the most articulate voices in the room who would kind of lead the day and that would really be a false consensus in some way. And so this idea of single decision maker was all about at the beginning of the decision process, one of the key things that has to happen on some level, and it could change, it could evolve, It's just being clear, ultimately, who is going to be the decision maker on this. And one kind of fun little technique that was created as part of this process was these little rubberized hockey pucks that were magnetic. And this is, of course, when people were meeting actually in conference rooms, which is hard to imagine at this moment. It had the letter D on it, and it would sit in every conference room, and it would stick to to the whiteboard. And so if you were going into a meeting and there was some sort of a decision being made, part of the training was around taking that hockey puck off the whiteboard and saying, who has the D? Who has the D? And there's language out there around decision making around who has the D. But it was very much around making that, that meta decision a huge part of the process. And if you weren't clear, if you were kind of looking at each other with this blank stare and saying, well, is it we who have the D or is it you or is it me or whatever? And in other words, there was a lot of ambiguity around that. Then there was work to be done around getting clear so that then a decision process could go forward, knowing that there was somebody who was ultimately accountable for making that decision versus all the churn that occurs or, or versus just defaulting to this sort of safe, quote unquote, consensus decision process, which really was suboptimal. Jake, jump in. The only thought I had was that I like some of the things in Annie's most recent book that talk about kind of neutralizing the power dynamics that, and this is one of the problems I think you always run into when humans get together and try to make a decision is that there are different status levels and everyone kind of knows it and it can carry more weight and you probably end up maybe with suboptimal decisions then because of that. So the pre-work part, I think is, and making it more anonymized, I think is what you recommended. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. So Brent, first of all, like that idea of walking into the room and saying, okay, who has the D? I think it's totally brilliant. I haven't done that before. So we always sort of end up, that's such a clean way to do it. I mean, it's obviously part of the process to figure out who's the final decision maker, but that's a really clean way to do it that makes it really intentional. And what I like about this, and this will circle back to what, what Jake, what you just said, is that it clearly delineates what the point of the conversation is. And the point of the conversation is not to decide. That is not what a group meeting is for. A group meeting is to inform. That is what it is for. Sometimes it's, it's either to inform or to explore creative alternatives. That's the other thing, which is a, which is a form of informing. Because if you're generating creative alternatives, you're informing the group as to what you think about these alternatives. So it's really just to inform. And if you say who has the D, then everybody understands, oh, we're not deciders here. Like we're not the ones who are trying to decide. We're trying to inform the decision. And then that allows for you to not feel like you all need to agree with each other. That allows you to feel like, okay, I'm just going to give my point of view so that the decider is going to have the cleanest view of the information space here so that they can then explore that space and make the best decision. And then that goes back to what you said, Jake, which is how do you actually get a clean view of what the information space is? And it's through this asynchronous work, which is one of the things I was going to cover, which is the power of nominal groups. 
just so people understand, a nominal group is a group of people who do things independently when they're doing things independently. And then when you come together, that's a, that's a group. But you want to do a lot of work as a nominal group. In other words, pre-work, asynchronous, independent. And what that does, as you just said, Jake, is it diffuses a lot of these power dynamics. Because now everybody can just offer up their feedback, give their rationales for that. That's collated, that's sorted together into general areas of agreement, general areas of dispersion, anonymized on first pass. And then you have a facilitator who comes in. So you would want to sort of do two things. Who's got the D and who's got the F? And the F is the facilitator, right? So, so the facilitator then is just going to nominate people. So I might say, Jake, you know, you have a, a pretty dim opinion of X. Can you please give your rationale for why? But you're representing a group of people who might be in your zone. And then I would say, Brent, you're in the sort of more rosy group. And I'm just nominating people at random. So I'm not nominating people who are leadership. And you're just giving your rationale there. And then you can see how that gives the decider that sort of the, mo- the best view of, of everything. And it damps these power dynamics because who gets to speak isn't determined by who interrupts or who just likes to talk a lot because I'm nominating people to, to actually speak. And then basically, once you've spoken, other people in the group can say, oh, I'd like to add to that, which is fine. And then people in Brent's group can also say, I don't understand something. They're not allowed to argue with you, but they can say, I don't understand something. Notice that this also solves some of this other problem, Brent, which is that it takes some of the coercion, some of that convincing out, because it's not my job to interrupt you and tell you you're wrong. It's when you're finished, it's my job to offer my rationale. So notice everything is through that positive frame. I'm not trying to neutralize you. I'm trying to offer my view. Totally different thing that kind of lives side by side. And then the other thing that that does is that the group naturally ends up talking much more about the dispersion than the agreement. So it flips the proportion of the meeting that's spent on agreement on its head versus dispersion on its head. So generally, it's about 80-20 agreement to dispersion, and this makes it about 20-80 agreement to dispersion. You sort of acknowledge the agreement, but then the conversation is around the dispersion. And then this is the really key thing, is that once, let's say, Brent and Jake have given their opinions, let's say you think something's a seven on a scale of zero to seven, and you think something's a two, and you've now given your rationales, not interrupting each other. And then I say to you, Brent or Jake, do you want to change your, your view here at all? And maybe you move from a two to a three, right? Maybe that moderates you a little. Maybe you go all the way to a seven. I don't know. But maybe you both stay at a two and a seven. But this is the key as a facilitator. You say, okay, great. And then you move on. So there's literally no expectation that you should have to end up in the same place. Because of your, what you just said, which was so brilliant, Brent, which is grab the D off the whiteboard, then the people who are having the discussion have no need to come to consensus. That's not the process through which the decision is made. A little bit of a variation on that that uh, I've used at times. And it's, you said, you know, two and a seven, and we call it the five finger technique. And this is in order to just take the temperature of where folks are in a room around a particular decision is you float a particular option up. This is a mixed metaphor, floated up the flagpole. You articulate one particular possible decision and you have a bit of discussion about it and you can facilitate that discussion in various different ways and, and really hear different pieces of information, pros and cons and whatever it is. But then you very quickly say, okay, on the count of three, I want to have everybody either hold up a five, four, three, two, one in terms of fingers. One being, I'm not really in favor of this, I need more information. I'm not comfortable with this decision. I will block this decision. Five being, I'll champion this decision. You know, I think it's the best decision since whatever it is. And then as a facilitator, it may be just exploring one of the particular options. You then do a deeper dive on the people who have held up one finger. The people who are in the middle maybe don't have strong information one way or the other, but the person who holds up or the folks who hold up one finger have reasons, they have information, they have knowledge and perspective that is really important to bring into the process. You make sure you create space for that to enter the, the conversation. And then you go to the other side and say, okay, but those of you who held up five fingers, what do you know that we don't know? Or what, do you, what, are the, what are the things that... And if you feel like you're in a very politically or hierarchical group, or there's one or two folks who tend to dominate one way or another, and there's a concern that some people will wait to hold up their fingers. They kind of watch the room and then they'll wait to see what a particular leader might hold up. And then they'll go, oh yeah, I'm going to hold up the same fingers as you actually distribute three by five cards. They have everybody write their number on a three by five card. And then on the count of three, they flip it over. So they've already pre-committed to their position before they know what others may have committed to. But you've just increased the amount of information 
in the room, at least from a perspective of engaging a conversation that allows you to just really play out the differences and similarities fairly powerfully. So it's, it's, it's similar. And Annie, the other thing in terms of going to people having coming in with positions and then having already, from a nominal group standpoint, talked about written that down, for example, and before, you also have the option of distributing those around. So I actually have to, let's say you come in and I know that you're already kind of leaning in a particular direction. You don't get to argue from your position. I get that one. I may have been on the other side, but I have to actually take your position and actually have to make the case from what you've done there. So it forces me from a critical thinking standpoint to really get inside the other side, if you will. That's a fun trick. I do. uh, There's a whole bunch of stuff where you can sort of, you can imagine what is the feedback that we need in advance. So you can imagine for a hiring decision, right? If I'm hiring a candidate, we can figure out what all the judgments are that I'm trying to elicit from the group. You can create a rubric in advance where people are offering their opinions and their rationales in advance. And you think about this for repeated decisions as well. So there's investment decisions. You can create a rubric for that. But there's always stuff on the fly in the meeting where it's like, okay, wait, oh, we realize that we need an estimate of the value of X. So you sort of realize there's something missing that you need. And I do the index card method then. I try never to have anybody raise a hand for the reason that you said. Richard Zeckhauser and Dan Levy actually did a show that when you do the hand raising method, you get super majority. So like just use just use an index card, which is exactly what you said. And I just have people write it down and then sort of reveal it all at the same time. Exactly that. I've done the arguing the other side thing before as well. What I find is that when you kind of sort the information in advance and just kind of areas of agreement and areas of dispersion, particularly when people see that there's generally more than one person in a group, it's usually not the case that there's one person that's like the outlier. What I found is that because people can't sort of see who people said and they want to come into the meeting pretty prepared, they've explored that space pretty well. And I think generally they kind of understand what the other person's position is pretty well, but occasionally I'll have them switch places when I can see that there's just sort of an impasse occurring. I think that's a wonderful addition. Just to touch on the power dynamics and the status of the known status of people in the room, I think that's an important dynamic to consider when you go into a meeting like that. And, and this idea that you know, we talked about Jeff Bezos and allowing for quitting, I've also heard of a technique that Bezos has used at Amazon, which is if there, someone is pitching an idea at any level of the organization, and maybe everyone in the room thinks it's a bad idea, but if one person thinks it has some merit and it's a good idea, that decision moves up to the next level. So it sort of flips the script on that. So it's, it's not that- Reverse most, veto, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Reverse veto. So if, you know, in typical organization, this kind of goes back to, I think consensus is probably what led IBM to the point where they were making those poor decisions vis-a-vis Apple that we were talking about in those earlier, because the maverick thinking doesn't filter up. It gets shut down at lower levels because yeah, someone's got an idea, it's a little risky, but they have information and conviction, but they can't convince a majority, they can't get consensus. But if someone believes in it, it moves up and it keeps moving up and it gets to potentially a disagree and commit situation where someone high up in the organization doesn't see the value in the, in the decision necessarily, but they're willing to commit because someone else does. And they say, okay, I personally disagree that, that this is going to work out based on my probabilities, but I'm going to commit to this and give it a chance. And maybe if you are willing to quit because you've got that, the ability to change and you also have that superpower in your back pocket, you feel a little bit better about disagreeing and committing. And therefore, more ideas go through the funnel and get out the other side. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And it, it is, it's very complementary to quitting. In fact, they can't exist one without the other. As long as people are quitting efficiently, I mean, that, that's part of what I was saying about quitting in the first place is that quitting as an intention, as a decision tool that's really right at the top of your toolbox allows for much more exploration. It allows for a lot more information gathering, which comes out of exploration. So I really kind of understand what's going to work and what's not going to work. It allows you to explore these things that you think you have a high uh, chance of kind of failing at, right? Being dead end. But it's because you're going to dead end them efficiently and quickly. And you're going to recognize they're a dead Mm -hmm. end. So in all sorts of different ways, it allows for those non-conventional lines that most of the organization might think have a high degree of not going anywhere to actually be executed on. Because obviously, we know there's a lot of gems in those. Because the, the whole point is like a startup comes and they're exploring a line that an existing company was unwilling to explore. We know that some of those lines that the consensus is might be dead ends are going to actually be quite fruitful. I hadn't actually heard about that particular thing in Amazon where, where like you get this escalation up the ladder. 
And even if there's a lone champion, as with a lot of things, that's quite brilliant. We talk about Apple versus IBM. I mean, at the point in time, IBM was making a lot of the decisions they were. They had a legacy to protect. They had the franchise to protect. There was a whole lot of tendency towards protecting what existed, you know, the sort of innovator's dilemma, dilemma, if you will. Now Apple's kind of in that same position. They no longer are this kind of scrappy startup, even though they would like to pretend that they are. And it'd be interesting to see over time whether or not they start to fall into some of those same traps. So far, they, there have been ways they have done that. There are ways they're changing it, you know, just even introducing the M1 chip right now and that, what, what's going to happen there. But, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over time. One of the ways that some of these companies have handled it is that they just become essentially angel investors and in startups. So it kind of solves it, right? Like you end up with a parallel track. You look for the potential disruptors and then you just fund them. You fund them and then obviously you've got that, you know, then the technology is wrapped into you. Think about what would have happened if IBM had funded Apple or Microsoft. They had been the funders. IBM would still, obviously. That's part of the knock against Facebook is that what they've been doing in some ways with some of the, their acquisitions. They funded yeah. them and purchased them. That's true. Although, the, yeah, the, the issue is you don't want to fund them to kill them. You want to fund them. To <laughs> <laughs> or maybe yeah. they do want to fund them to kill them. <laughs> I'd love your thoughts too, Jake, about investment committee decision versus individual based on that previous discussion, if you want, if you want to chime in on that. It could be my own biases being displayed here. But in general, I think you somewhat end up the joke about a committee tries to invent a horse, they end up with a camel. I don't think that the committees work particularly well in the investment world. I think definitely all the same principles that we just talked about apply where you want to have, you want to look for variant perceptions and find them and try to incorporate them into estimating the probabilities of how the world can go forward from here. But at the end of the day, I think the skin in the game is a really big, important piece of this. And consensus to me is trying to slough off your skin in the game and push it off and let someone else share the blame if things go wrong. So in general, I'm, I'm anti-investment committees. Berkshire is a, is a really good example of it is very centralized. There's one person making most of the investment decisions, and he's got a lot of skin in the game. Granted, he's also an extreme outlier as far as intelligence and ability to play the game. So if you're a mere mortal like us, it's not quite as obvious that that's the, the one guy that should be doing. But in general, I, I think you get better decisions having one person making them in the investment world. Jake, do you have a tool or practice you want to pitch to the group that will help us make better decisions? Let's do information diets and, and truth density. So I think that's probably the more applicable to things outside of the investment world. I think as we start to understand more about the world and how complex it is, and the other part of that is, is how tightly coupled the world has become. Uh, that's another part of the complexity equation I think we miss is that when we have little failures along the way of individual pieces that are complex, they can propagate now throughout a system much faster than they could when the world was much less tightly coupled. All of which is to say that it's really hard to see into the future. And yet our brains, we evolved on a linear world with relatively low complexity. If you saw that animal tracking along the savanna, you know, it's a pretty good idea that if he disappeared behind the bush and he would reappear on the on the other side of it. And that was where we most of our circuitry was built in a very much less complex world. And so we are hungry, we're starving to create narratives that explain both what just happened and what's about to happen. And in a complex world, like that is a is a pretty dangerous proposition to think that you can come up with a clean narrative for why something just happened. And I think we, in, in, especially in the investment world, there is so much ink spilled and CPU cycles in the brain wasted on trying to explain what could just often be random noise. We spend a lot of time talking about it to the point where it's kind of ridiculous. I would say like, give yourself permission to go on an information diet. If you are going to eat information, look for the highest truth density that you can find. Jim Chandos, who is a famous short seller in the investment world, has this really cool idea of, of an information onion. And at the, the core of the onion, where is the highest signal to noise, are the actual SEC filings. And that is where the company has to tell you things, right? It's not that they want to tell you everything in there necessarily, but they have to by law. As you move out outside that, the next layer of the onion is the, the corporate communication. So that can be the conference calls and the slide decks that they, the companies put together. That's kind of more what they want to tell you and not as much what they have to tell you. 
the next layer out of that would be like sell side research. And that's, you know, things that they're trying to convince you to do something. It's not necessarily as truthy as even the, the two layers below them. And then on the last outer layer, which people probably spend most of their time, if we're being honest, is in the rumors, the social media. What does everyone else think about this, right? That's the consensus seeking. It's shocking how often the differences in what can be on that outer layer versus what's in the inner layer if you actually went and looked for yourself at sort of source documents, high truth, high truth density documents the disconnect between people's opinions of what that says and what is actually has been reported by the the thing closest to the truth. So I like to think about it like the other thing I like to use often is like, I think books are probably where you should be spending a lot of your time as well and less probably on articles and tweets. Because you think about how much time, human effort and thought went into one versus the other. I like to think of books as like the oil of information. So we have to call it, there's roughly 12,000 gigawatt hours of sunlight that hits the earth every day. And, but the problem is, is it's spread over roughly 197 million square miles. It's low density, the energy. Now, what ends up happening is that packets of this sunlight, plants, animals, end up getting trapped in different ways and, and then put under extreme pressures. And eventually, you end up with this energy density that oil is roughly 10 times as energy dense. It's like 44 megajoules per kilogram. It's 10 times denser than TNT. So you have this extreme concentration of energy. And I think in a book is roughly the same sort of the human concentration and pressure that went into writing that book and is roughly similar to oil. You can look at a tweet and that's like sort of like getting a little bit of sunlight relative to a book, which would be more like the oil of information. So I encourage people to look for their most nutrient-dense, the most truth-dense sources that they can find. I have a question for you, Jake. I don't know if it's like a chicken and the egg problem. Like I'm not exactly sure how I would describe it. But obviously, you're talking about some heuristics, books versus articles, like sort of you could think about like, what's the reputation of the person delivering the the information. You can think about what's their motivation. So you would want to look for like conflicts of interest. Are they trying to sell something? There's some simple things. But I think about something like QAnon, for example. These are people who really believe the truth of that. And they're seeking out people who are giving that truth. And I think that they would probably self-describe themselves as having a good information diet. I assume, you know, and then like books versus articles are obviously there, there's lots of books out there that take the secret, for example, just uh, some gobbledygook about like, you know, your brain waves are magnetic. And so if you think about traffic, that you'll be in traffic the next morning. Anyway, <laughs> Oprah loves the book. Obviously, that's gobbledygook. It's wacky, but it's a book. It's a book that someone put a whole lot of time into. We know that for example, when we're, when we're thinking about the way that people think about data, I could write a whole very thoughtful book that is completely misusing data to sort of get me to the conclusion that I want. So I agree with you. Like, I think that all the tips and the heuristics that you talked about are great tips and heuristics, but don't we kind of have this core problem though? I would love to sort of hear your, your thoughts on that. You have that problem no matter what. The source is always going to be a question mark. And I think for me, I will try to triangulate on the truth through different and not take any one as gospel. So oftentimes I will read five different books on the same subject close together and they help me to triangulate on what is an, an approximation of the truth. I think the other part of it is to just generally be a little bit more humble about what capital T truth actually means. I think it's a little bit more subjective than probably most people would care to admit, even the things that you really truly believe like deep down. Even the SEC filings, by the way. There are very few capital T truths. I think triangulation helps. I think humility helps. There is no one answer, but I think you can get at least in the ballpark and, and stay. This is also like, it's sort of probabilistic. Like you're, you want to go over a big enough sampling size to hopefully mitigate some of those errors that are going to pile up. And maybe, maybe some of the errors cancel each other out on either side. You know, another heuristic that I've often used is just how long has this book been in print? Has it stood the test of time? The Lindy effect. I mean, I think that's one to consider. I also want to make a connection to the nominal groups, Annie, that you brought up in that as you're thinking about that onion, the information onion, which I love that, that mental model, and, and you're trying to dig into the core and really get to the facts and come to your own independent assessment 
of what's going on here. If you have a nominal group of five, six, ten other people who you know and trust to also independently dig into that onion and look at the core and come up with their own opinion, I think that's now you've added another sort of layer of in your process that's going to make a better decision if you are open to listening to that group. Jake, I would love your uh, thought about this. I use, would use make a habit of pretty much on a monthly basis. Where I lived at the time, there was uh, Borders and then there was a Barnes & Noble fairly near each other. And I would go to both of those, not with the intent of purchasing a book, but just doing my own version of what I called environmental scanning or, or whatever it was. And I would go to certain sections in the bookstore and I would just sort of stand back and I would just look at the titles and look at what was emerging, what was what was taking up more shelf space, what was taking up less shelf space, and what was new that wasn't there a month before in one way or another. And I often would come away from those kind of environmental scanning sessions with some sense of where thoughts were trending or what was, but, you know, and this is, of course, recognizing that the delay factor and between writing a book, doing the research for a book, writing a book, and then actually having it be published and show up on the bookshelves, which is not insignificant. And so there was a lag, lag time in that. But I don't do that anymore, partly because I don't live near any big bookstores, partly because those bookstores have been put out of business by Amazon, and partly because you can't quite do the same thing with Amazon. It too quickly takes you in a direction, and you don't get that sort of what I call the library effect, which is you might be looking at one book, and then all of a sudden there are three or four others that are kind of in the same zone that you never even thought about. I totally agree with you, Brent. You just don't get the same library effect when you're on Amazon. What you get is an algorithm that gives you the conventional path. It says, people that looked at this book also looked at this other book, but the, the serendipity and the larger pattern recognition is gone. So Jake, how do we do an environmental scan in today's information world or take the pulse, so to speak? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's, it's really tough now. Like Before you know, we had, and this sort of draws in the, the question of is the US too big now to kind of exist as an entity? Because we don't have really any unifying cultural touch points like we did. Everyone would watch the news and there were three channels. Everyone would watch Seinfeld and you could talk about the same episode when you showed up to work on Friday morning. And now there's been such a fragmentation of attention and narratives and cultural touchstones that, and even worse, we've siloed ourselves in a way that we just like feed ourselves what we want to hear. And we don't have much outside view anymore. They become these just echo chambers. So it's really hard to get a pulse because there are, there's so many different heartbeats now. I don't have a good answer on... Twitter might be possible because you can, you can follow people in different echo chambers, right? right? And like sort of, if you look like the average person probably is a confirmation bias machine when it comes to Twitter. They just get the same feed of all the people who think the same way that they do and tell them what they want to hear. Maybe that could work. Like you said, the bookstore now is a million miles long. You can't walk down the aisle. That's impossible now. The skill that also is in there is very difficult to perfectly describe. I think of it as pattern recognition. You're, you're sensing patterns through the information that's coming in, and then you're putting those patterns to use. I'm just constantly, because we have limited time. And uh, you know, if I could spend all day, every day, just cruising the aisles of the bookstore, the metaphorical bookstore, I can't. I'd make an argument for using Twitter in a way that sort of gets you back to that bookstore. If you do curate your feed in a way that you get access to sort of that nominal group that Annie's talking about, or just independent thinking people or different echo chambers that you're tapping into, that might be the suggestion for the next book you need to read to get off of Twitter or a line of thinking or open up a mindset where, okay, that's kind of interesting. And then you sort of have to step away from Twitter and go purchase the book and think about it or the four or five books on that subject and do the deep thinking and then come back. And that, that's the way I think about it anyway. Sometimes hard when you're scrolling Twitter to find the nutrients. The problem is, is they'll they show up just often enough to keep you coming back. <laughs> I mean, it is a a randomized reward, like a slot machine type of behavior, which is terrible for your dopamine systems. Like awful. Yes, it preys on the vulnerabilities of our psyche. Well, Mastermind Group, this has been another fascinating and wide-ranging discussion on decision-making. We went from the merits of quitting, introduced by Annie Duke, to who has the D and clarifying the decision-maker, from Brent Snow to information diets and truth densities, offered by Jake Taylor, 
So I think there's something in there for everyone, all excellent tools and techniques and practices for getting better at decision-making. Annie, thank you for being on the Decision Mastermind Group. Where can people find out more about you and what you're working on these days? I learn so much every time that I'm, I'm here. People can find me um, on my website, annieduke.com. That's a great place to contact me. You can, find out where, you can find out where to buy all my books there. You can see video of me speaking. All my podcast links are there and whatnot. And then, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of nominally on LinkedIn and other places. But the main place that like, I'm actually personally quite active would be Twitter at Annie Duke. Jake, thank you for being a part of the panel. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? The website for our investment business is farnum-street.com. But I also have the Value After Hours podcast that I participate in. And Twitter is probably not a bad place to find me either. I, I spend some time there, probably a little too much, uh, if we're being honest. And that's at FarnumJake1 if you're looking for me. I highly recommend that Twitter feed, by the way. And Brent, thank you for being a part of the panel. Like all of us, I would love us to have even more time and just keep digging into these topics. So you can find me at either my website, www.10,000feet.com. It's all spelled out. One word, no space is 10,000feet.com. Or you can email me directly at brent at 10,000feet.com. I tend to not be publishing the way both Annie and Jake are. That's a goal in the future. Need to make decisions consistent with that goal. A lot of the ideas are contained in the, in the various courses that I really get engaged in creating for organizations. So thank you, Sean. This has been great. Well, I'd second that motion to get some of those thoughts of yours out there on paper or on a blog. So I think that'd be a wonderful thing to do. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening in on The Good Life. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.